All right, so I want to start out today by uh, listing, th- we're going to play a little game, okay? I used to host trivia, um, and uh, we're going to play some trivia today, okay? Just, I'm going to list you three dates. I'm going to see if anyone can tell me what happened on these three dates, okay? So the first one, June 29th, 2007. Does anyone know what happened on that date? Yeah, good job. Yeah, the, the iPhone was released. Uh, we we kind of take this uh, invention for granted, right? But this is this was a world-changing event. Um, if you kind of just think about all of the things that are part of our normal life now, but that weren't before 2007, it's actually pretty mind-boggling. Um, it was a, a shift that kind of caused the world to be, never be the same, for, for good and bad. And we're wrestling with kind of the, compli- or the implications of both of those. But suddenly we had connection to everyone else in the world, basically. And we had access to basically all the knowledge that had ever been in, uh, come, uh, come across by humans in human history right in our pocket. It's pretty incredible when you think about it. And we take it for granted all the time. But really, we live in a world that is completely different uh, than the world on June 28th. 2007. Okay? All right, next one here. Um, July 16th, 1945. Close. I'll give you a hint. There was a very popular movie that came out about this this summer. Atom bomb was, the first atom bomb was uh, blown up in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Yeah, the movie Oppenheimer is all about this. Um, it was the, the Trinity test is what it was called. Um, so, I mean, I don't think we think about this as much because it wasn't, you know, on our, you know, it didn't happen in our lifetime, but suddenly in the blink of an eye, we had invented a way to completely destroy ourselves. Um, and the world was never the same after that. It's, a, it's a, a, a very different way in which the world was changed forever on that date, but no less um, important than the iPhone. Okay, last one here. Last one here. December 17th, 1903. Nope. Yeah, yeah, good job. Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, two brothers invent, uh, flew an airplane for the first time. Um, the, the first airplane was ever flown. Yeah. Uh, Julie and I are, are, are we're hoping to adopt here actually uh, later uh, this, this fall, and we're going to be expecting a phone call where we're going to be told, hey, uh, can you be down here today like for the birth of this baby? And 120 years ago, that would have been an insane thing to think that that would be possible. But now, it's just a matter of us trying to find a flight that can get us, you know, we can schedule it. But we we can be down there in the day because of this invention. It's another thing, another way in which the world was completely changed forever because of what happened on the state. Suddenly the possibility existed for someone to be across the world in one day because of this invention, when normally that would have taken, you know, days or weeks for someone to get down to a place like that, okay? So the reason I bring all these up is we're living in a a new world because of dates like the ones that I just brought up today, okay? And I I, I think we're not used to thinking of our faith as Christians, as people of God, as a result of an event that happened like this, that, like these, that changed the world forever. But that's exactly what Christianity is. It's something that exists because of something that happened in history that completely changed the world forever, okay? And that's what this passage that we're going to be in today is all about. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, 
Okay? And we're in a series um, about holiness. Right? We're talking, it's, it's called Becoming Who We Are, asking what does it look like for us to get made into something that has already been true of us. And today we're talking about the end goal or the design for those of us who are holy. And so we're talking about the good news that our holiness is founded upon. That's, that's what the passage is all about today. We've been talking about this alternate identity that we're supposed to take on. And 1 Corinthians, really what it is, is it's painting a broad canvas for us to uh, think about what does it look like for our holy identity that's been made true of us because of Jesus to intersect with our day-to-day life. But one thing we haven't talked about is what is it that makes this ability for us to live holy or gives us this identity possible? What gives it a real transformative power? What gives it teeth? to where we could think it would be something that we could take so seriously as to base our whole lives around it. And the answer to that is something that is just deeper than tradition. It's just deeper than something, you know, we do because we do it, or this is the way Christians have done it for 2,000 years. We do it because of something that happened in history, something with a power on far surpassing the things that we talked about even just a little bit ago. Okay, so what we're going to do today is I want to walk through the passage. We're going to pause and we're going to make some application points. Now, we're not going to get to every verse. This actually is 60 verses long. And I don't know about you, but I want to watch the Vikings later today. So we're not going to go through every single verse uh, of, this, uh, of this passage, but we're going to draw on a bunch of them and really point to a lot of the big moments, the important parts of it, and really think about how this event has changed the world and really made it so that we can uh, live as holy people in the present and also have a hope for living in, a, in holiness in the future as well. And that, this is an important passage for us as a church because um, resurrection is, is in our name. Now, if you think that, you know, when we were planting the church, we just, you know, we had a bunch of name ideas and we threw a dart and, you know, on Bible words and it landed on resurrection, we figured we'll name the church that, you know, that's not actually it. Resurrection is actually incredibly important, I think, thing for us as Christians to uh, constantly be dwelling upon. And this passage is all about that. And we thought it was so important, why don't we name the church after this? Okay, so it's a really important for us kind of personally of a passage, and I think you'll get an understanding of why that is um, as, we, uh, as we walk through this, this passage, all right? So the reason that Paul has to write this to kind of close the letter is that apparently some Corinthians were abandoning this idea of a literal resurrection, um, we don't know for sure why, again, with a lot of this, we kind of have to guess a little bit because it's like a game of telephone where we're only hearing one side of the conversation, seeing what Paul has to write to them. But it's probably because of some belief that resurrection, physical resurrection, was inherently flawed in some way, that um, people should be seeking after a spiritual future, right? And it, and it might have been influenced by an early form of something called Gnosticism. Maybe that's something that you've heard of that was a, 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 a kind of... Um, popular philosophy that kind of grew and developed in, in the Greco-Roman world around this time and a little bit afterward, afterwards, which is a, a dualistic worldview, kind of that had two main features, um, one of which was that spirit is good and body is bad, okay? The physical world is a bad thing that we should be trying to escape, and instead we should want to live in a spiritual world, all right? And if that's true, then we wouldn't want bodily resurrection. We would actually prefer to escape the physical world into some spiritual dimension. Okay? And so it's possible that they look down on this idea of bodily resurrection because of that. Okay? Um, whatever the reason is, Paul tells them that 
you, this is not something that you can just delete out of your worldview. This is actually what everything is founded upon and creates all sorts of problems for your faith. And that's what he does. That's what he talks about in this passage. So let's get into it. Let's start it off here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Let's talk about the first two verses to start. Now let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. So Paul is, for Paul, the literal resurrection of Jesus from the dead to physically alive was so important that he couldn't let them hold this Gnostic view because that's what constituted the good news. Now, good news, you see that right here. In some translations, it's going to be translated gospel. The reason for that is because the Greek word that's used that we get the word gospel from is literally just the word for good news. So the gospel is simply the good news of something that happened, all right? And so that means for us, let me, let's just pause and think about that for a second. The gospel isn't good advice, but good news, all right? This is a really important distinction, I think, that maybe we can sometimes forget, um, we often treat what we do here in Christian faith and how we live our lives as more like good advice, right? A kind of philosophy or wisdom to live by where our hard work and following after that will determine some sort of outcome, right? Where maybe we think following Jesus is going to give me the true happiness and contentment that other things wouldn't, or believing in Jesus will give me hope of some kind. Um, if I pray in the right way, then maybe I'll get what I want. Um, if I repent, that's a good way to deal with my guilt and shame, um, or living Christ-like, trying to bear the fruit of the Spirit, it's a philosophy that we should embrace for a better world. Now, I think all of these are true, okay? So let me set that straight for you here. But if that's all our faith was, then it would just be sort of another option in the cafeteria of options and philosophies and wisdoms that we choose to live by, and we would evaluate it like those. But the gospel isn't that, the gospel isn't that, and that's what Paul is making clear in this passage. Instead, the gospel is a news alert that the world has changed forever because of something that God did right in the middle of history. In the same way that Steve Jobs invented the iPhone and Robert, Opp Robert Oppenheimer invented and detonated the A-bomb and the Wright brothers flew an airplane. Right in the middle of our human world where people go about their normal days with their hopes and their dreams and their ideas and their routines, without warning, a man named Jesus showed up claiming to speak for God and he hinted that he was God and he was murdered for it. And instead of staying dead like all, everybody else who has died in history, God brought him back to life and opened the floodgates for life after death for all other people. So something happened. That's the good news. And it's mysterious, and it's surprising, and we don't always know what to do with it, but it still did, and we have to fit our lives around that reality. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we're all here this Sunday morning. That's why this thing called Christianity came to start in the first place and still exists, because of something that happened. And that's the number one thing that Paul wanted the Corinthians to walk away understanding when he first came to them. He continues on in verses 3 to 9. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. 
After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way that I persecuted God's church. So Paul says that this good news is that Jesus died, he was buried, he came back to life, he met with people, 500 of them, apparently, and eventually Paul himself. Okay? It's just like some news story where there's some witnesses, right? Like asking some people uh, what they saw and when an earthquake happened. Okay? That's kind of what he's describing here. And actually, I think that's a really powerful part of the historical reasons that Christians have to believe that, that what we believe, what we do, isn't just some fairy tale or myth, okay? Because what we have here is, is Paul writing, kind of very matter-of-factly, to this group of people in Corinth that there are more than 500 people, most of whom are still alive, who the Corinthians could go ask themselves, who can all attest to seeing Jesus being raised to life again. It wasn't something that he heard from his cousin's friend who thought he saw something, right? This is something that is verified by a large number of people. And if the Corinthians had any doubt about it, they could just go ask these people. Now, almost all scholars think that this letter is written within two decades of Jesus' life, somewhere in the 50s um, AD. So what we have here is a historical document. It's a letter that says that Jesus rose from the dead, and Paul knows hundreds of people who are eyewitnesses of it. This is how we do history. This is how we learn what happened in history. We study documents like this. Okay? I know we treat this as, uh, as, a, as a, his, like a religious document, and sometimes we might think that we can't consider it history because of that, but that's not what Paul was writing it to be. He was writing it to be a letter, just like all the other letters that we have in history, written from one person to another, that we use to reconstruct what happened in history. That's all that Paul thought he was doing, was writing a letter to some people, talking about some stuff that had to do with their lives and his. And it just so happens that he mentions, oh, by the way, someone came back to life again. And it's a pretty big deal, and we're going to kind of all shape our lives around that. Now, I know that that's a tough sell for us to believe, right? But any sort of serious rejection of this has to also include some sort of alternative hypothesis to it. And I think very few historians really object to the fact that from the start, many people were convinced that Jesus had come back to life, that there was an empty tomb where his body used to be and now wasn't, and the Christian movement grew very rapidly after that as a result. Okay, if you don't believe me, even Bart Ehrman, who's a very famous agnostic New Testament scholar, who's, who's written a lot of books, who's shaken a lot of people's faith, he says this, we can say with complete certainty that some of his disciples at some later time insisted that he soon appeared to them, convincing them that he had been raised from the dead. Okay, this is pretty, pretty well understood historically, that people in this time legitimately thought Jesus had come back to life again. And something has to explain those details. We can't just say, well, I, don't, I don't think so, I don't think that makes sense, so I don't, not, I don't have to believe it. We have to kind of make sense of the data if we want to do good history. All right? And so let me actually just offer a few uh, responses to some alternate suggestions that people have sometimes on what you could do with this data. All right? The first one is that Jesus is given, was given a drug that made him appear dead. Or the Romans thought he was dead, but he was faking it. Sometimes it's called the swoon hypothesis. I think the sneaky Jesus hypothesis might be a better name for that one. Um, a response to that one is, 
read Roman history. Romans were really good at killing people. They did it all the time, right? And so for them to, you know, not know if Jesus was dead or not is pr- pretty unlikely. They would check this stuff. They would, it was their job to kill people. And so they would have made sure to know that Jesus was dead. And even if he wasn't, let's just say that he wasn't, that they had done all the stuff that they normally did to kill someone and he'd somehow survived it. Imagine Jesus showing up to his disciples. He's, he's looks like he's been beaten to a pulp. He can hardly walk. He's probably missing some teeth. There's a huge gash in his side, sunken eyes, pale face, and he's saying to everyone, hey guys, I defeated death. Can you believe it? I don't think that that people would have seen that and thought, oh my gosh, he was raised to life again by Jesus. That's probably not what their response would have been. They probably would have thought, I, somehow you survived that, but I don't think you actually died and came back to life again and, and are telling us you have the power to defeat death because of it. Okay, another one. Um, the disciples claim to have a vision of him. You know, just like people do a lot, like dreams or hallucinations or whatever, and they were confused by that and thought it must have been Jesus coming back to life again. Okay, let me give you a couple of responses to that. Um, I think we sometimes think ancient people were, you know, stupid because they didn't have iPhones or airplanes or atomic bombs, right? We might just think, well, we're a lot smarter and more cultured than they are because of that. Um, But that's not true. Ancient people were very uh, acquainted with things like visions and hallucinations, right? And they had language to describe that, Um, This is not just some modern thing that we discovered very recently. So they would have said, if that's what was happening, I saw his ghost or his angel or his spirit, right? And if you don't think that, like, people writing the Bible would have used that language, there's, you read the book of Acts. There are actually situations where someone shows up, and that's what they say. They, they literally say, oh, it must just be a vision of his spirit or his angel or, her go- or his ghost. In the book of Acts, that happens uh, with Peter, for example, Right? So they had language for those types of things. They wouldn't have said, they wouldn't have used the Greek word that they did to describe literal resurrection, literally coming back to life again. Right? And, and, I th- and typically, when people have these types of experiences, like hallucinations or visions or whatever, we don't take them to be a sign that someone's come back to life again. We actually take it as a sign that they're actually dead because we know what's going on. We assume that they must actually be dead if I'm seeing a vision of them showing up to me after I know that they've died. We don't often get confused and think they came back to life again. And adding to the kind of absurdity of it all, 500 people all having the same hallucination at the same time seems a little far-fetched. It just seems a little bit far-fetched. And even if that's what had happened, they all could have gone to the tomb and double-checked and found his body still sitting there and said, well, it must, it must have just been this, a vision or a, a hallucination, just like we're used to having. But that, none of that happened. Okay, another one. There's something called cognitive dissonance. Um, it's, it's a phenomenon whereby people who believe something strongly, they go on saying, all the more strongly when faced with contrary evidence to what they believed, they kind of double down on it. They fail to take the negative signs on board, and they just go deeper and deeper into denial. Um, and can, can only sustain their position by shouting louder and trying to persuade others to join them, okay? Some people say, well, that's what it was. They just couldn't deal with the reality of what was going on, and so this thing called cognitive dissonance took place in their heads. Um, that would maybe make sense, but they're not doubling down on something they expected to happen. No one thought Jesus was going to come back to life again after this. Um, no one expected a Messiah to rise from the dead. That's not what Messiahs were supposed to do. Messiahs were supposed to not die in the first place, 
right? And we have examples of other messiahs dying in the same time period, and no one ever had this idea. They had other ways of dealing with it, of making the movement continue to keep going. They would name the brother of, of, of the, the, the dead Messiah as the new leader. And Jesus had a brother who was part of the movement, a guy named James. And no one ever seemed to ever uh, think that he might be the guy that would take over again, right? So it doesn't seem like they're just doubling down on what they already believed. It seems like something totally out of the blue surprised them and happened, and they don't know what to do with it. They're shocked, but... They don't have any other uh, way to deal with it than to just continue on in it, to continue on in the, in the new thing that's happened. Okay? Another one, sometimes people say it was like a legend, and it just kind of, over a long period of time, it grew longer and longer legs, and it just started running to it got to a point where the, you know, it got kind of way beyond what anyone ever expected it would. But this letter itself is actually proof that that is not what's taking place. Like I said, almost everyone thinks that this is written within 20 years of Jesus' life. And what we find right off the bat is that everyone from the very start thought that this literal resurrection was the key to everything. From very, very early on in the Christian movement, we see that that's already very clearly established. Okay? One last objection is just simply the observation that we know that dead things don't come back to life. That's true. We know dead things don't come back to life. But actually, and N.T. Wright says this, the fact that, peop- that dead people do not ordinarily, ordinarily rise is itself part of the early Christian belief, not an objection to it. Early Christians agreed dead people don't come back to life. And that's why they made such a big deal out of this. They knew that that's not a normal expectation, what we have. And so when it happened, or they believed it happened to them, they built everything around it. This is credible. This is a credible thing to believe. We have to at least admit it's one of the things that has to be on the table as one of the really strong reasons for why the Christian movement became what it did and why we're sitting here in the first place. But Paul's making the point that this is much more than just credible news or fact. He, news is just information until we, dis, we find some meaning to assign to it, right? We do that with news all the time. And sometimes the news that we read is trying to give us meaning in part of the news reporting, right? We have to find something to do with the news that we receive. What gave these events meaning for Paul is that they fit the narrative of Scripture. He says twice in this passage here, uh, just as the Scriptures said, he assigns some meaning to what happened by saying, this is just as the Scriptures said. That's what it gave this event meaning for the early church. Now, I don't know what specific passages Paul necessarily had in mind here, but you could say that the Old Testament scriptures are like a story in search of an ending. And now, in dramatic fashion, there was one. One far more incredible and surprising than people could have imagined, right? A king coming with power, of life being breathed back to him in power, of rescuing them, of bringing a kingdom that couldn't be shaken. Even death itself could not stand up to what God had said was going to happen, all seeming to come true in the resurrection of this man who claimed to speak for God and hinted that he was God. It seems like exactly the way that you would, in a surprising way perhaps, but it fits perfectly as a way to end the story of the Old Testament scripture the sign that God had truly done what he always said he was going to do, seemed to have happened. And if you take this out of Christian belief, everything else starts to crumble. So Paul says here, and we jump to verses 13 to 19, For there is no resurrection of the dead 
For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. I assume you've all played the game Jenga before, right? You know, you have all these little blocks and you kind of build a tower with them and then you're supposed to keep pulling blocks out until you finally get to one block where you pull it out and the whole thing falls apart, right? Um, if you play, you know, sometimes it can take a while to get there. Sometimes, you know, yeah, you do it right away. You're, you're, you're just really bad at the game. The, the thing about it is the rest of the tower can be very solid, but if you pull out the wrong piece, the whole thing will all come toppling over. Paul is saying that the historical resurrection of Jesus is that bottom Jenga piece in the tower of Christian faith. And if you pull that thing out, everything else that we believe starts to fall apart. It doesn't make sense without this. And so let me ask you this. I think this is something we don't think about much, but are we treating the resurrection as the bottom Jenga piece of our faith? That's what Paul is challenging the Corinthians and I think us as we read this today to, to consider. I think it's interesting because we would often say Jesus' death is actually that, that bottom Jenga piece of our faith. And I don't want to take anything away from his death, okay? It is absolutely central. It is, it, it is another thing that if you pull that thing out, it's hard to make sense of Christian faith without it. But just consider, if that's all that happened, if let's say Jesus just died and he didn't come back to life again, then all it really is is just another example of a good person who got martyred for having some challenging teaching. Right? And there are lots of people like that in history. Right? What the resurrection, why the resurrection matters is because it shows us that something about Jesus is different than all those other people. Right? There are all sorts of people who have come and maybe they've claimed to speak for God. Maybe they just have come to say, I'm offering you a universal truth, something that describes the way that the world is. Right? And we still hold many of them in high regard. We venerate them. We still treat their words as very important, as something to follow after. Okay? But Jesus is the only one that God said, this is the one I especially want you to pay attention to. This is the one that I vindicate. This is the one I want to draw your attention to. I'm going to raise him to life again. Other people have died because they love someone to save them. Right? Other people have taken bullets for, to save someone's life, right? Which in a sense you could say is what is taking place on the cross. Jesus died for us so that we may avoid the bullet of death and, and, and hell. Lots of people have done that and we laud their sacrifices, we celebrate them, but no one believes that their death did anything more than that. But Jesus, again, is different. That's what the resurrection is all about. It makes it more than just a gesture of deep love for us and takes it and makes it something far more incredible than that. And I think if the resurrection is all you have, it's enough in hard times of skepticism when the rest of the Jenga tower might feel like it's falling apart in some way, or someone is pulling Jenga pieces off the rest of our towers of faith in some way. If that resurrection piece is still there, I still think that that tower can stand. 
Resurrection is special for me because it's where I hang the hope that I have. I've actually found myself doing this in the past. You might think, because I'm a pastor, like I never have doubts. But I can assure you, I do have serious doubts sometimes. I've wrestled with my own faith throughout my, throughout my life. And in one more intense period of that, where I kind of struggled with believing if all of this faith stuff was true, as I was preparing to go into ministry, I was doing training, I was preparing my life to do what I'm doing, I was actually going through this and wondering if I was committing myself to something worthwhile. And there was, uh, for example, one of the things I was struggling with is some inconsistencies it seemed to me to be finding in Scripture. Wondering if this is actually trustable. Can I really build my faith on this book? Was one of the things that I was asking myself. And you can get to a point, I know, I know some of you have gone through this, you're not alone in this, where you feel like you have to be stacking all these things up in your faith, and if anything kind of comes out, the whole thing is going to tumble down. I do think sometimes we feel like if a Jenga piece towards the top falls off, we start to fear the whole thing is going to fall apart. I came to the realization for me that if the resurrection is true, which I feel like I have really good reasons to believe that that's the case, that allows me to sometimes have an incomplete tower, to be a a tower in progress, where where Jenga pieces are missing, and I don't have to worry about the whole thing falling apart. I still have a tower because this piece is still in place, because that's the foundation for me. I don't have to prove everything at all times. I can hold some things with an open hand as long as I feel secure in this. If Jesus came back to life, even if I don't have everything figured out, it's still worth it to keep going for me. Jesus is still worth my full attention because he made some radical claims and he got brought back to life again. And the scriptures are worth me reading because Jesus saw himself living in that story. And so there must be something about it that is important, even if I don't always know how to put all the threads together. Even if I'm not 100% sure on why this thing is here, what do I do with this story, or maybe this seems like an inconsistency. If the guy who got raised to life again saw himself living in the story that this book told, I should probably pay attention to it too. And I can feel comfortable doing that and not afraid that everything is going to fall apart because the right Jenga piece is at the bottom. Now, the resurrection also matters because it clarifies not just the past, which we've been talking a lot about here so far in the sermon, but it also lays a roadmap for us of the future. And that's where Paul kind of transitions for the rest of the chapter here in 1 Corinthians. Okay, Uh, let's go verses 20 to 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, and all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But the scriptures say God has put all things under his authority. Of course, when it says all things under his authority, that does not include God himself who gave Christ his authority. Then when all things are under his authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority so that God who gave his Son authority over all things will be utterly supreme over everything everywhere. For the moment for us right now, resurrection is true, and we live in light of it. 
We seek out holiness because of it. We, we gather together on Sunday mornings because of it. We do all the things we do as Christians because of it, but there is still more to happen as a result of the resurrection. There will come a time when what happened in miniature to Jesus will happen to all in Christ and then to the whole world. A total remaking and resurrection of the entire world, where death becomes like the bad guy at the end of an action movie, done away with totally. And the world is set free from God, or set free from it, and God reigns fully. The big point I'm making is that if resurrection is true for Jesus, it's those who trust for Jesus too. Okay? Think about it like this, right? Let's think again about his, these historical things that have happened in history that have changed the world forever. We were all born flightless, right? None of you were born with wings. It's part of our humanity to be flightless. The first humans were flightless, and so thanks a lot, we're now flightless too because of it. But then everything happened in 1903 in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Somebody flew. What that meant is that one day, flight would become possible for all other humans too. When that first plane was invented, flight was only in the hands of, of those people who flew. But now that flight has come into the world, it's kind of become this guarantee that flight is now possible for all of us who trust in what the Wright brothers discovered that day. And resurrection is kind of like that too. Those who follow Jesus will follow in a resurrection like his someday as well. Because something that didn't exist came into the world then. And it becomes a guarantee for us who follow after him that it will be true for us as one day as well. And that's really the great hope of this good news, of this gospel. It gives shape to our past. It gives shape to our present. And we talk about that a lot at Res City. But it also gives shape to our future. Our future looks like Jesus's. And because of that, that resurrection is available to all, death is no longer undefeated. Verses 54 to 57, Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is no longer undefeated. That is what this means. The Renaissance philosopher Michel de Montaigne quipped that death has us by the scruff of the neck at every moment. Put another way, um, there's a show Julie and I like to watch called Suits. I guess it's, it's very popular on Netflix right now. There's a lawyer in that show named Harvey Specter, and he's used to always winning every case. He's this very suave, kind of arrogant dude because of it. And he likes to tell everyone that everyone, the whole world's record against him in these court cases that he goes in is owing everything. That's humanity's record against death, owing everything. Right? Death and its forerunners, age and decay and disease, what they do is they remind us how out of control in the world we are. And, it, and that's something we abhor. We don't know what to do with a lack of control. Right? I think one of the features of the very secularized world that we live in is that we try to find a way to touch eternity on our own. We, we feel out of control. We're aware that we can't touch eternity because of death and all of the things that come out of death. Age, decay, disease. And so what we do is we think we can attain that on our own. We can f- or some aspect of it. Completeness, wholeness, bliss, happiness, perfect health on our own power. We think we can buy it or we can invent it, or we can work hard enough to it, or we can order it on Amazon. That's how we're used to dealing with things when we're out of control, right? In the world that we live in now. And there's always going to be that impulse, I think, in us as humans. A great example of it is the first emperor of China, 
uh, Qin Shi Huang, um, a, an emperor, right? All the power that a man could have at his disposal. And he was terrified of death, and he dedicated his life to overcoming, or to finding out how to overcome it. And he did all sorts of stuff. He dispatched a sword, sir, across the sea to try to find a magic potion that would uh, grant someone immortality, and the sorcerer never came back. He actually stole his money. <laughs> he tricked him. And eventually, uh, this emperor became convinced that drinking wine sweetened with honey and laced with mercury would save him. So he drank that for most of his life. And not surprisingly, he died at age 49 from it. He lived a life of fear and despair because he was trying to control eternity. And he had everything at his power and disposal to try to fight it. And he did, and all he ended up doing was killing himself earlier and still living in that despair his whole life anyway. The pursuit overtook him. And we continue on trying to do that, right? The per- people are actively trying to outrun death, right? We meticulously trying to have the healthiest habits of life, trying to use the latest silent science to prolong our life, to beat cancer or genetics or whatever it is. I know there's some tech whizzes out there that's like made it their mission to uh, end death. The anti-aging industry is what it's often called. It's worth $610 billion, I recently saw. It's a very big deal in the world. Um, some even harbor dreams of living on in some computer, of uploading their consciousness uh, into like the metaverse or something like that. These are the kinds of things that we're trying to do to defeat and control death. Still, death has remained oh in everything, and we remain stuck in the despair of reckoning with that on a regular basis. Except for this one man, Jesus. And here's what makes the good news good news for us. Because Jesus is not like Batman, where he invents all these gadgets, but he uses them kind of totally for himself. He won't share them with the cops because he thinks he's the one that has to defeat all the criminals on his own. Jesus has opened it up for us to one day experience the same. And it's not by following some magic or, or, or scientific process, right, where we're just trying to meticulously check all the boxes, follow the, the Jesus method for living uh, forever, but committing ourselves to him, surrendering control, giving up that control, and having hope instead of despair, to commit ourselves to him, to believe and be transformed in the here and in the future. Joining the victory parade of what Jesus has done to defeat death and one day having our own victory. Now, I know sometimes when people think about immortality, they kind of point out that death is actually a good thing. Right? That living forever would actually be more of a curse than a blessing. You know, you see some movies like this sometimes, or like some characters lived forever and they're just like, man, this actually kind of sucks. This isn't really fun. Everyone's died around me and it's not really that fun and I'm still stuck being a human and living in the human condition, living in the doldrums of life in a fallen world. And I actually agree with that. That does actually not sound very fun to live forever in that way. Okay? And this is where we need to understand the nature of our immortality. Because we're talking about resurrection here. It's not just living on in the same manner of life that we've always had, trying to hold on to the glory days like some 48-year-old guy who still wears his letterman's jacket with his letters that he got in high school, high school football, when he was an all-conference football player, in this sort of groundhog day scenario, trying to do the same thing over and over again, but really just kind of stuck in despair. That's not what our immortality is going to look like. It's the promise of a new kind of life that both looks like the one we have now, but it's also something new. Okay? And that's what Paul says here in verses uh, 35 to 44, and then we'll skip to verses 50 and 51. But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? 
What a foolish question. I actually think that's a good question, Paul. Sorry. Um, When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you are planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. Similarly, there are different kinds of flesh, one for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are also different, there are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on the earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the glory of the earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and stars each have another kind. And even the stars differ from each other in their glory. It's the same with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to life forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. What I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. We're not talking about limping along in immortality by just hanging on to the old life that we have. We're talking about a death to this old world and the weakness and the, uh, the, the, the brokenness that we have in it now and a life to a new kind of world and body, one that's part of the new state of affairs, the kingdom of God. It is a good question. Would it be good of God to curse us by giving us immortality in this life, in this one broken by sin and death and decay, right? Maybe broken in the ways our bodies are plagued by weakness. Ask someone with chronic illness if they think living forever in a body beset by chronic disease of some kind sounds fun to them. I can guarantee you they'd say that, they would say that's probably not true. Or consider the weariness that come with living thousands of years Okay, but still stuck in this world where the vandalism of shalom of sin, like we've talked about in sermon series here in the past, is still inflicted on the world we're in. That doesn't sound fun. That actually does not sound like a good thing for God to do to us. Okay? But that's not the hope that we have. The hope we have is of living forever in bodies in a world that have been made new and transformed. And into a new kind of body even, like what Jesus had. When you read the resurrection accounts in the Gospels, it's really interesting Something is different about his body. It's very clear. It seems like some people didn't recognize him for some reason or another. People who knew him and should have known what he looked like. Um, It seems like he maybe was able to pass through uh, walls or locked doors. There's one story where, where that is the case. And he still bore the scars of his crucifixion on him. He still had holes in his hand, we're told. But these are not fatal. They're trophies of what had died and what God had redeemed reminders of what tried to kill him but couldn't keep him dead. We're going to be resurrected in the same kinds of bodies. That's the hope that we ultimately have. So let's, let's bring all of those to, the close, to a close. Not just this passage, actually the whole series. Okay? Becoming who we are. That's the name of the series. But what's the final phase of us becoming who we are in Jesus? What's the final phase of this holiness? Paul says in verse 58, So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord and know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Okay? Throughout a lot of this, um, uh, this letter, we've been talking about what we do in the here and now to, 
to, to grab a hold of holiness and live out this identity that's been given to us that we can't earn or attain or work for or buy, but we uh, have been given to us freely and live into it in a full way. We've been talking about that, but that's hard to do, right? It, it, it's a difficult thing. Living holy is tough, but when we have the knowledge that what we're doing is worth something, is, is moving towards something that God is going to finally and fully finish when we fully become who we are it makes it easier. It gives us a hope that even when it's difficult or we fail in some way, it's still moving towards God's destiny for us. And I think that's the final thing that gives meaning and power to what we do in the moment as we seek to live holy. It's that we have this ultimate hope. And I want to leave you with that here as we close today's sermon. I'm going to pray for us, and as always, we're going to enter into a time of communion and worship and give you a chance to worship God, to, to consider what it would look like for you to uh, live as one who has the hope of resurrection, who knows that this will be uh, the, the holiness that we seek to live now in the present is not something we're just doing uh, for the fun of it, but is something that will have a hope ultimately because the Jesus who, was, who died, whose body was broken, his blood was shed for us, which we remind ourselves every Sunday morning when we take communion, was also raised again. And we have the same hope that we can look forward to as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that what we do here is not just good advice. It's not just something we do because it's fun or we think it's a better option than some of the other options we could choose for how we could structure our life. But Lord, we do it because you did something. You did something incredible, unimaginable in history, a reality that we're shaping our lives around God. We thank you that you didn't just do it for Jesus, but you offer it to us as well. You give us a hope for one day being able to live like Jesus and in a world that looks like the resurrected Jesus God. I know there are a lot of days where we long for that so deeply, God, to live in a world that has been made new, Lord, and we know that you are going to do that. We have the guarantee because you raised Jesus again from the dead. I pray that you'd help us as we strive to live holy in the present, to try to become who we are now, Lord, in, the day, in our day-to-day lives, while also holding on to the hope that you will one day finish the job by helping us to become who we are fully when we are raised again and live with Jesus in his kingdom. We pray this in his name. Amen.